thing or God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We're praying and and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part we could see base camp. I want to say happy Father's Day to everyone here and whether you are here in Bellingham or in Skagit uh, watching us online or you are in Boca Raton. We're so happy that you are here. And again, happy Father's Day to all of our dads. Uh, you never know what a son may or may not do for his dad on Father's Day. Uh, this year, I saw something unique I'd never seen before and it, because it never happened before. Kraft Foods has decided 2018 at the last minute to do a fundraiser for one of their favorite, favorite charities. And so what they decided to do was to talk with eBay and put out an auction for a Father's Day gift. But this is no ordinary gift. It had to be a food gift coming from Kraft. And so what they've decided to do is for five lucky winners, uh, they are going to allow the highest bidder to receive a custom-made 40-pound bust of your dad made of cheese, okay? So this is, this is it right here, okay? And as you look at this, you can see that the son is really kind of proud. He's pretty excited about this. And it is a, a very memorable gift, uh, you know, for his dad. It's made out of sharp cheddar cheese. And I think what is really ironic is that Kraft says, don't eat it. So, okay. And it is, I'm tempted to go down the road of cheesy jokes like, I got a brief free, but I would never do that. So, anyway. So this is quite a unique gift. I'm sure that this dad and anybody who ever comes into their house to see this is going to remember Father's Day 2018. But for many people, uh, Father's Day and all the hoopla that goes along with it is pretty hard to swallow because maybe Father's Day is something they would prefer to avoid. And the truth is that for many, many people, Father's Day is something they would like to completely forget or not even have it on the calendar. For example, maybe you had a dad who just wasn't ever there, and you got the distinct impression by that absence that he wasn't for you. Or maybe you had a dad who was there and just wasn't the best dad, and you wish he wasn't there. This last couple of weeks, I, I talked to a, a young girl whose dad has recently died, and... Um, it's just really killing her that in 2018, this is the first year that dad won't be there. 
Every child has a daddy-shaped hole in her or his soul. And when dads or fathers are unwilling or unable to fulfill that role, it can leave wounds that just go on and on and on. And when you and I as Jesus people, imperfect as we are, we look for people around us or we look in the pages of the Bible and we're wanting to find somebody who could give us a boost, someone could be an example for us. And the problem is, is that when you and I even open up the pages of the Bible to find good dads, there are a whole lot more who aren't than who are. And some of the heroes of our faith have deep personal relationships with God, and yet they, had, they made serious mistakes as fathers that impacted their families for generations. And to make matters worse, there's all kinds of makes and models of dads in our day and age. We have single dads. We have men who long to be dads, and it just isn't happening so far. We have stay-at-home dads. We have dads with special needs kids. Way to go. We have grandparents in this room right now who are raising their children's children. We have dads who this year are continuing to grieve the loss of their spouse and how she meant so much to him and how it's just very difficult for him to go on as a dad. We have dads who, we have a lot of dads in this category who work way too much. And then we have other dads who are just out of work. And week after week, they put in on the prayer wall, I really want God to please give me a job. We have foster dads. We have dads who adopt. We have a lot of stepdads. We have dads, and this is, I think, really interesting to me. We have dads who have two boys, and they do the same thing with each boy. And one turns out right, and the other takes the wrong turn. It's complicated in many, many ways. And so getting ready to talk with you out of the Scripture this morning on what it means to be a great dad, uh, I've done a lot of research in Scripture, but I've also done research just reading magazines and so forth. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is, is what Americans think dads should be, should be and do and don't do. So I've read a bunch, and I've just come up with my own list, and here's what I think uh, Americans are wanting dads to be, do, and don't do. Do your part in the providing. Don't just be there. Be fully there. Be present. Be there throughout their childhood. Be good to their mother. Balance discipline with fun. And don't just discipline, have fun. Don't just have fun, but discipline. And be a role model. Now, this is totally unscientific, but that's just what my pulse is, my sense of the pulse of the American public. That's what I think that we're looking for in our dads. That's what our culture says. But the question for us who are doing our best and maybe doing it imperfectly to follow Jesus is this. What does God say that he is looking for in a dad? And that's precisely where Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, comes in. 
And we're in week three of our summer series called Stories Worth Telling, and here is a story worth living out. And of all the men God could have chosen to raise his one and only gifted son, why did he choose Joseph? What was Joseph like? And what did Joseph do that you and I as 21st century dads can learn from? And so this morning, you get to have three speakers. Uh, I'm the leadoff batter in the uh, lineup tonight or this weekend. And uh, Jeff Shaw and Mike Anderson, who I think are modern-day Josephs, are going to come in and supplement what we get out of the Scripture as personal examples for us today. So as I give the message, there are two takeaways, one at the very, very beginning I'm going to give you now, and one at the very, very end, okay? So here's the first takeaway. If you want to be the dad that God wants you to be, ask yourself, what would Joseph do? Now, it's been a very long time since Christmas. It's really nice and getting warm now, so we're going to just reread the Christmas story very briefly in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible or your device, I want to open it with me to Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, that's the ultimate king who will one day rule the world, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and we're going to come back to this, being a righteous man, when he had uh, he was unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss or to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, and we'll come back to that in a little bit too, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus, Matthew 1, 18 and following. So the question for us this morning is this, what was it about Joseph that qualified him to raise God's one and only son, the son who would be the ultimate ruler of the world? How would you like to have that job? Well, what was it? It was who he was. And there are a couple of things I want to show you from this morning's text. If you look at verse 20, we see the first of these. Joseph was the son of David. And what that meant was that he was royal. We just had a royal wedding, and we knew that Andrew had to be in the line to perhaps one day become king. Joseph was in the royal line. There were probably hundreds, hundreds of people out of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of David. There were many, many people alive at the time who could potentially lay claim to the throne. Joseph was a royal. He was a son of David, son of the greatest king. And when the angel finally settles in Joseph's tortured mind, what's going on with my fiance? How did she get pregnant? I know it wasn't me. An angel comes to him and settles all the confusion that she's actually telling the truth. He took her, in verse 24 and 25, he took her as his wife. And at the end of verse 25, 
He named him Jesus. So Joseph is a royal, a direct descendant of the greatest king of the past. And he names Jesus, and he claims Jesus by publicly naming him. That means he is my son. He is now a direct heir of the throne of King David. So there are some other qualifications, I think, and most of us don't qualify on that one, but hopefully we'll see some more where we can. Matthew 1.19 tells us, her husband Joseph being a righteous man. He had to be a royal, and he had to be righteous. Now, righteous is one of those words we just don't have in our modern vocabulary these days. There are a lot of Bible words that just are powerful words. We respect them, but we feel a little, I don't know what they mean. Words like transgression, words like iniquity, words like salvation. Uh, And here is one of those words. Now, if you grew up in California, you have your own definition of what... uh, righteous is. Righteous is a guy who is a really good surfer who's a pretty good all-around guy. He is a righteous dude. But Joseph made different kinds of boards, if you'll pardon the expression, and showed us what a different kind of man who is a biblically righteous person. So I want to take a few minutes and just unpack that word because it's all through the Bible. We use it all the time. Most of us aren't sure what it means to be a righteous person. And then the question is, well, how does that impact me today as a dad? So the question is, what does righteous mean? And here's the response. It means having a reputation for doing the right thing. Joseph being a righteous man. So Pastor Randy and his wife Pam went to hear James Taylor at Key Arena uh, last week, and it was great. They were given front row tickets. Pretty neat, huh? And so talking with Randy afterwards, uh, what was it like? He says, well, the one thing we knew what was going to happen is that he was going to sing Fire and Rain. It was predictable. When you are on a long trip with your kids on a vacation, perhaps, and they're in the back seat, and it's been hour after hour after hour, you know what you're going to hear, and if you know it, say it with me, are we there yet? It's predictable. And when it comes to figuring out what kind of person Joseph was, He was predictably a person who would do the right thing even at his own expense. But this raises a question, what's the difference between a good person and a righteous person? And the Bible does distinguish this. In the book of Romans, which we studied not that long ago, last summer, you come to Romans chapter 5, and right before it talks about how Jesus is willing to die for people who are his enemies... Romans 5.8. In Romans 5.7, Paul says this. It's rarely, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, even though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. So Paul says there's a difference. So he acknowledges that there are good people, but that's not the same as being a righteous person. And in essence, this is the difference. A good person, and we know a lot of good people who are not followers of Jesus, Right? We do. A good person has a moral, comp- a moral compass that tells her or him what to do, that the culture around that person says, yes, you're a good person if you do that. So what is a righteous person? A righteous person has a different compass. It, it has some of these same things, but it's a different compass. 
Instead of being attuned to the culture primarily, it is attuned to the kingdom of heaven. And so it, it does some of the same things, but more than just a good person would do. And that's why it's so amazing in that passage. Paul says, look, they're good people. Maybe, you would, maybe someone would die for a good person. Very few people will die for someone who's a righteous person. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, even that while we were enemies with him, Christ died for us. The ultimate righteous person is very different than the perfectly good person. And in Matthew chapter 5, Joseph's great son, Jesus, puts this, this contrast very clearly for us in the Sermon on the Mount. The good person, for instance, says, it's wrong to murder. We all think that that's right. But the righteous person says, "Mm, there's more to it than that. The righteous person releases, divorces. That's the same word. Let's grudges go that the good person will hang on to. The good person says, it's wrong to cheat on your spouse. The righteous person says, "Mm, there's more to it than that. It's wrong to daydream about being married to someone else. The good person reasons that compared to other people, I'm pretty good. And some good people will say, I need God. And some good people will say, I'm good enough to live a happy, beautiful life without God. That's a good person. But the righteous says, no way, baby. No way. There is crud lining the soul, the walls of my soul. If people could really see what I'm thinking when no one else is around, and when I talk to the person in the mirror in front of me, you would be surprised at the conversations I have with him. When I look at the crud in my life, I know I need to be forgiven, and I know that Jesus did something to make that happen for me. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not good enough. I want the peace that they have. I want to be able to deal with stress the way she does. I want, to tell you the truth, I want a whole new me. That's the kind of moral compass Jesus is asking dads to install. And that's why we should be asking ourselves, what would Joseph do? He wasn't just royal. He was righteous. And there are a number of other clues in Joseph's story as to what a righteous dad would do. And I'm just going to take a moment just to highlight these for us. Uh, For instance... Joseph, in our text that we read this morning, Joseph refused to shame his wife publicly. That'd be a good thing in general for us to do. You see, righteousness tends to stand up for what is right and stand against what is wrong. And that's what Joseph did. He couldn't marry Mary if she wasn't who she said she was going to be. And it was the right thing for him to say no. And the angel had to talk him out of it that righteousness is, there's more going on here than first meets the eye, Joseph. Righteousness is like milk. It is good for us, but it can go sour. And left all alone without this beautiful additive called mercy, it, 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 can, it can turn you into a judge, turn you into someone who is 
privately shaming your kids or privately shaming your wife for not living up to what your expectations are. And Joseph refused to shame his wife publicly for being pregnant with somebody else's child. Second thing, Joseph and Mary dedicated Jesus when he was eight days old, and that's why Pastor Mike and others are doing this this weekend. Now, again, as Mike said so clearly, this is not how a child or becomes right with God. That's their decision to put their faith in Jesus or not later. But this is an important thing, for, and parents have been doing it for centuries. So why is it when they dedicated their child, it's an example for us today? Well, Jesus' parents did it. He let them do it. Maybe we should be doing it too. But beyond that, it's very practical. What a child dedication does or can do, a child dedication can set faith in motion. And it, when you tell your kid that on uh, June 17th, 2018, we dedicated, we gave you to God, and you say that to him over and over again as a kid, as a teenager, it's a powerful thing because once they know they've been given to God, whose they are, then they know who they are. And once they know who they are, they can act accordingly. So, and then when they're 18 and they're navigating some tough things and they're tempted to do all kinds of crazy things, I can't do that because I've been given to God. Another thing that Joseph and Mary did was that they parented beyond their capacity by making worship a routine part of their lives. And in Luke chapter 2, you know the story uh, where they accidentally leave Jesus in another city at the temple, make their way back to Nazareth. Halfway home, they go, whoa, where's our boy? 12 years old. So the point I want to raise making this is just very simple. They thought Jesus was with their friends. And their friends had gone to worship with them. And the thing about this is for us in the 21st century is this. Our kids, our grandkids, don't just need us. They need other adults who follow Jesus to the temple in their lives. Because there are things that it's just too scary to tell your mother or too scary to tell your dad. But maybe they would tell your parents' friends because they've hung out with you so much, they've been in community, they worship together. Maybe they could trust that other adult. And what we're finding out is, is that, that we struggle, the church struggles, because what happens is that so many of our kids raised in explorers, and I'm not using us really as an example, but in the U.S. church, people grow up in churches, and then when they hit high, at the end of high school, they go to work or go to school or go in the military or whatever they do, they kind of leave their faith in their childhood. And when you can think back, what we, let me put it this way. Studies are showing that if you as a parent are in a small group, if you are coming to church regularly to worship, the odds of your child walking away from God dramatically decrease when they get out of high school. It's called having a sticky faith. And it comes from having other adult friends that you admire and want to be like when you grow up. And they parented beyond their capacity because they worshiped with other people and had times hanging out with other people who love God. And this last point is very interesting to me, and it, I hope it'll be of interest to you. Matthew 1, 19, Joseph divorces her quietly. 
uh, secretly. It's the same word in Matthew chapter 1 when Herod gets the, wise, gets the wise men and the scribes together. Where is he born? He doesn't want anyone to know about it, what's going on. He, de- he meets with these men quietly, secretly. It's the same word here in Math- this part of Matthew chapter 1. Mary is pregnant. Joseph is going to divorce her quietly, secretly, with two or three witnesses, not in front of the whole community. And Joseph is a quiet man. Uh, when you look at, at Matthew and Luke, Luke is talking about Mary. Matthew's talking about Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus. Mary is unbelievable. She has face-to-face conversations with the archangel Gabriel himself. They talk to each other like this. Joseph, our guy today, hears from an angel in a dream and a sleep. He never is fully awake when he gets this message from God. There is no face-to-face conversation awake. He never says anything back. In fact, Joseph is such a quiet man that there is not one word of Joseph's conversation with anybody in the New Testament except for the time when they lost their son. Where's our boy? That's the only time. Joseph is a quiet guy. And here's where I think just one application of that is so important. I have a lot of friends who believe that God, they've been told by others and they sense in their own life that God wants to do something great with my life. And they are putting amazing pressure on God to do something in a sense where they become the celebrity. They become the well-known Christian and, or to prove to themselves that they're really worthy to be a follower of Jesus. I have no idea if that's affecting you, but I have a handful of friends who are under amazing pressure to be something, do something great for God. And Joseph, Joseph would counsel us, it's okay to accomplish the will of God as an ordinary, as a quiet person, someone who was always in the back of the nativity, away from the child and his mother, who doesn't say that much. We look up to the people who are not the celebrity Christians so much. We, we admire them. But we really look up to the people who were there when we needed them to be there over a period of time. It's okay to be a quiet person. So Joseph wasn't, or Joseph was, wasn't just a royal. He wasn't just righteous. Joseph gave God the right to derail his traditional expectations of what his family was going to be like and to take a different, an unconventionally righteous course. And for that, Joseph, the stepdad of Jesus, is the patron saint of all kingdom-minded dads especially those who adopt and are stepdads. So I'm going to go back to the first takeaway and then give you the last one. Here's the first. Dads, when you're not sure what to do, ask yourself, what would righteous Joseph do here? And here's the second takeaway. Your greatest kingdom impact may not be what you do, but who you raise. And that person may be someone else's child.
Let's be like Joseph. So we're going to bring our, the rest of our team up. The cleanup hitters are arriving after the leadoff guy here, and they're going to bring this point home. So this is Jeff Shaw coming up, followed by Mike Anderson. And uh, we're going to just take some time, and I want you to hear their stories real briefly here. Uh, Jeff and Jen Shaw uh, currently have seven kids at home. The number goes up and down all the time because they are foster parents, and they have adopted, and they have bio kids of their own. He's a modern-day Joseph. Uh, he and his wife, Jen, have a ministry in Cornwall that he'll mention here a little bit to you for adopting and foster families. And my friend Mike Anderson, uh, he and his wife Kim have a phenomenal ministry all over Whatcom County helping step families blend well together. They coach moms and dads on how to handle this major transition of bringing two, two independent families to live together. So what we're going to do is very simple. Jeff, Mike, Jeff, you go first. We want people to hear your story. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about being a Joseph. So and Pastor Bill, you're a good uh, leadoff hitter. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so in my story, uh, I have a Joseph. So my biological father was out of the picture when I was four years old. And I had two years where I was fatherless. Uh, that's until my Joseph showed up. And uh, his name is Jim Shaw. And I took his last name because of his courage to step in and take not only myself, but three siblings uh, that weren't, weren't his. And he stepped into, voluntarily, into our, our mess. And as I was growing up, you know, it got weird and strange when my biological father came back into the picture when I was 18. But to me, I could, I could separate. I had a biological father and then I had a dad. And to me, they were extremely different. And as I was growing up, I'd introduce my dad as to my friends. And they'd say, like, you know, is this your dad? And I would hesitate. And, and under my breath, I would say, well, he's not, he's not my real, real dad. And that slowly went away. But it really didn't go away till I became an adoptive dad. And I looked at my adopted kids. I have four adopted. And I asked the same question as, am I their real dad? And I looked at them and I thought about that and said, you know, I'm, I'm their dad. They have fathers, but I'm their dad. And I'm real, so I'm their real dad. <laughs> right? Thank you, thank you. It's pretty good. And so now I can tell you that when I introduce my dad, uh, underneath my breath, I say, that's my real dad. That's my daddy. And now I get to be a Joseph. And my wife and I have stepped in. And I have nine kids. I feel like I'm at confession or something here. <laughs> I have nine, a group. Uh, yes, my name is Jeff. I have nine kids. <laughs> and when I see the picture of, uh, of all of us, we're not always all together. So two are out of the house. And so to have 11 in our small organization is, is kind of crazy. <laughs> but I'm a dad. I'm a biological dad. I'm an adoptive dad. And I'm a, a foster dad. But you know what they all call me? They just call me dad or daddy or as my three-year-old 
He calls me Sweet Daddy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that one's my favorite, Sweet Daddy. So I get asked a lot, just like, how did you step into this? And it's a long story. We don't have time today. Um, but it's not something that my wife and I planned out. And really, because of my wife's conviction and her vision, and really one scripture, and that was James 1.27. And it talks about true religion and caring for orphans and widows and not being polluted by this world. And we wrestled with that verse and said, well, what does that mean for us? What does it mean to care for widows and orphans? And so we prayed and prayed, and we took little steps that ended up being big steps. And here we are with, with nine kids. And, and what I would share that, you know, as we wrestle with that, and whatever that means for you, is, is that we had to do something. What we learned was that there are orphans in our backyard that are not being cared for. And we have the means and the ability to step in. And so, simply by obedience, we, we stepped in. And here at Cornwall, uh, we have a growing ministry. We have 30 plus families who are, who are also Joseph's and Mary's who stepped in and said yes to kids uh, who weren't their biological kids. And these folks are, are my heroes. And, you know, if you ask me now, I would say, hey, I'm, I'm just a blessed dad. Cool, Jeff. Uh, I love hearing that story. I've heard it a couple times now, and especially Sweet Daddy Jeff. I mean, yeah. is that awesome or what? <laughs> As Jeff talks about uh, foster and uh, adoptive kids, you know, I got to imagine that often they're feeling fearful and they're feeling lonely. And there's a whole other demographic of kids in our culture that have those same feelings and that step kids. And I know that because I grew up as a step kid. And, you know, along with that, I also kind of felt like, man, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? And that's really a, a challenging thing. And that insight um, really was special as I became a stepdad myself about 17 years ago. Uh, and I don't know if you know how prevalent stepfamilies are in our culture, but uh, the U.S. Census reported back in 2011 that roughly 40% of families in the U.S. are blended families. And research since then shows that we're actually crossing the 50% mark as that continues to grow. And so, statistically speaking, up to half the dads in this room right now could be stepdads. That's a big deal. You know, Kim and I, uh, my wife Kim and I, uh, get the opportunity, as Bill mentioned, to coach and to lead and support step couples uh, in our community. And we find more and more that stepdads in particular tend to fall on kind of this spectrum of their approach to being a stepdad. On one end, there's the abdicator. They're kind of the ones that say, you know, uh, I know that kids are part of the package here but they kind of have their dad, I don't want to interfere with that particular relationship and I'm not sure that I have much to offer anyway, so I'm just gonna kind of stay back and be along for the ride. Now on the other end of the spectrum, they're the stepdads who are seeking authority and I'm guilty of this one. Like it's, I'm gonna take the bull by the horns, I got some lessons to teach this kid and I'm, I'm gonna do it. You know, when my stepdaughter uh, Annika was, was young, I. I just wanted to teach her respect. I wanted to teach her responsibility. I wanted her to take her academic career seriously and start getting prepared for adulthood. And poor Kim's over there going, Mike, she's only six. Right? 
You know, but that was just kind of the way I leaned. And what we find over and over is the most successful stepdads, the ones who get to connect with their kids the most, who get to speak wisdom into their lives the most, are the stepdads who kind of fall right in the middle of that spectrum. They're not abdicators stepping back. They're not seeking authority, trying to push their way in, but they're influencers. They fall right in the middle of that. And I think Joseph got that one right. You know, if there's any stepdad in the history of humanity that has probably the right, I would say, to be an abdicating stepdad, I think it's Joseph. It's like, I'd be thinking, well, I think Jesus' dad probably got him. I think he's okay. He can take care of him, right? Like Mary and God, they can work out the parenting plan and file it with the Sanhedrin and we'll be all right, you know? <laughs> Maybe uh, when I get a couple more rug rats running around that are mine, then I'll just focus my father efforts there. But Joseph didn't do that. And one of the biggest indicators I see of that in scripture is that the Bible refers to Joseph and to Jesus both as carpenters. That tells us something. That tells us that Joseph made an investment. He was passing something on to Jesus. It was a trade. It took years to pass on. It was, he was turning him into a craftsman and that meant they spent time in a shop talking, relating, building a relationship. And Joseph knew that relationship came before lessons. I think Joseph was an influencer. So stepdads, I'm just here today to tell you that sometimes you might feel like you don't have much to offer, but I want you to know, and actually stepmoms too, that you've got something to give to your stepchildren that no one else in their life has to offer. No one else in their life. So step up to that. Be an influencer, just like Bill's teaching us this morning. Do what Joseph would do and step into that. Be the influencer. Thanks for letting me share. So we're going to close our service here in Bellingham, and we want to say happy birthday to everybody there in Skagit. Uh, we love you, Brian. Happy Father's Day there. Uh, and turn it over to you and Tia at this time. So as we close our service, I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. After the service, if you'd like to come forward and have some prayer, maybe for you as a dad or for someone, something or someone in your life, we invite you to do that. And at the same time, we're going to let uh, Jeff and Mike go out into the commons. Maybe you want to know a little bit more about the Cornwall ministry uh, to adopting and foster families, and maybe Mike and Kim can talk with you about their ministry with step families. So uh, we're going to act a little religious today. That passage, this is true religion, so we're going to act a little religious. Here we go. So I want you to hold your hands up as people have for centuries when they pray to God, okay? And let's pray for our fathers, shall we? Dear Father, dear perfect and good, good Father, I just want to thank you for every man who is, is a father, uh, who is looking to find you and looking to raise kids the way you want him to. I would just pray, Lord, that you would give that dad the righteous compass mixed with mercy, mixed with discipline and fun, that they would become the role model by their behavior. Don't let them think that, God, you're finished with them as dads or as grandfathers or stepdads or adopting or foster dads or whatever. I thank you that the work you began in every dad you will complete. 
And I would pray for our congregation because so many have genuine wounds from home and from dad. And we would just ask that what those dads were not able to give, that somehow or another you would either heal or make it up to those kids in some other way. And now, God, we just bless you for everyone who is here. We pray that your peace, your guidance, your presence would go with us into this new week. In the name that has won our hearts, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.